Welcome to an exclusive recording of the Shepherd's Path, the Seerah of the Prophet wasallam, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif rahimahullah in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Al-Maghrib on-site events. For the past 20 years, Al-Maghrib has brought in-depth and quality Islamic education to cities around the world. From weekend seminars to inspiring ilm nights, conferences, retreats, and more. Life-changing seminars and events with renowned teachers coming to your hometown. Our student family stretches across 40 cities in four continents and has grown to the largest student body studying Islam in the Western world. All right, for those who don't know, if you look at a map, you have like the Arabian Peninsula and, you know, the Hejaz area. At that time, it wasn't known as Saudi Arabia, for those who didn't know, right? It was known as the Hejaz, the Hejaz, area and then on the other side of that you cross the water and there you have like under Yemen there's like Somalia there's uh, Ethiopia and as you're moving upwards then you have like uh, Sudan and then you have Egypt right so Abyssinia was just across the water to the Hejaz area as you said one of the wet nurses of the Prophet was Umm Ayman who was Al-Habashiya right and there were other Abyssinian people there in Mecca, and they did have a relationship with Abyssinia, the people of Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ, in about a fifth year between Mecca, since receiving revelation, he was in Mecca for 13 years. About the fifth year, the Prophet ﷺ sent a delegation of companions to Habasha. Sent a delegation of companions to Habasha. In that delegation, 10 men were there and five women. Of those people who went on the first trip was Mus'ab ibn Umair, Az-Zubair ibn al-Awwam radiallahu anhum. Also Uthman radiallahu anhu went. And the Prophet sallallahu daughter Ruqayya. A lot of times people when they comment on this trip to Abyssinia, they'll talk about they were being tortured in Mecca and so they escaped to Abyssinia. However, when you actually look at who was sent to Abyssinia, you'll find that they weren't necessarily the slaves in Mecca that were being tortured. In fact, the, the names that were just mentioned there, these are like Uthman radiallahu anhu became the Khalifa, Az-Zubayr radiallahu anhu was like of the highest level of companions. These people show that when they were going to Abyssinia, it wasn't necessarily just to escape torture. However, some commentators say that it was almost like a plan B in Habasha. So the Prophet ﷺ is in Mecca. What if the Meccan people don't accept the message of Islam? That from the fifth year of receiving revelation, the Prophet ﷺ was already planning a plan B. If everything in the Arabian Peninsula didn't work out, then we might have seen Habasha being you know, the key focal point where the message of Islam would spread. And so the Prophet ﷺ had multiple options open. If this didn't happen, he would go here. If that didn't happen, he would go there. Nothing could stop the Prophet ﷺ from carrying on this message. The people that went to Habasha, in fact, they didn't return to, um, to be with the Prophet ﷺ until like the Battle of Khaybar, which happened very late in Medina. You're talking about like in the sixth year. Talking like the sixth year, seventh year, and those like when they came back, there might have been just a few more years and then the Prophet ﷺ died. Meaning that they were away from the Prophet ﷺ for, you could say, around 15 years. And they lived in Habasha. So all this time, all the, the seerah and all the stories that we went, we'll be talking about, they actually missed it. 
Many of them were in Habasha this whole time. And of those people who was in Habasha the whole time was Ali radiallahu anhu's brother who was Ja'far radiallahu ta'ala anhu. The Prophet sallallahu kept in contact with them all those years. So when something would happen to them, they would send messages to the Prophet ﷺ, this is our situation. When the Muslims, you'll see that a situation had happened in Mecca, and they thought that the people of Mecca had become Muslim, and they returned to Mecca. And when they returned to Mecca, they realized, no, this wasn't the case. The people of Mecca hadn't become Muslim, and they went back. So they're following the news of the Muslims in Mecca, and the, people, and, uh, and the Prophet ﷺ is following their news as well, and what happened there. Why did they go to Abyssinia? The Prophet said, go to Abyssinia, go to Habasha, because in Habasha, there's a king, the statement of the Prophet in which he said, La ahad, that under the leadership of that king, no one is treated unjustly. No one is treated unjustly. That king, his name was Ashama. Ashama al-Najashi, and Najashi is the name of the king. So any king, that becomes uh, a leader in you know, Abyssinia is named Najashi, kind of like the, t uh, the term Pharaoh or Caesar. In these countries, like if someone's a leader, they're called Caesars. There could be multiple people named Caesar. And there could be multiple people named uh, Pharaoh, and there's multiple people named Najashi, the term Najashi. It's uh, for the king of Abyssinia, but this is a specific king, Ashama. And so the companions, radiallahu anhum, they went there. The Quraysh, they couldn't allow for you know, all these people to be going to Abyssinia and compiling themselves. You'll see that it wasn't enough for them to just, you know, they were angry at the Muslims. They didn't just want them to go. That, did, that didn't make them happy. They wanted them to be killed. They wanted them to end, right? Or the, the fitna for them to end and, and they wouldn't just allow them to go to another area, gather themselves and collect their strengths. During that time, after the fifth year of, since receiving revelation, a couple of incidents happened that took place that made the people in Abyssinia think that the Muslims, that the Ahl Mecca had become Muslim. Of those things was Hamza radiallahu anhu becoming Muslim. Of the situation as well was Umar radiallahu anhu becoming Muslim. And there was a situation that happened in Mecca in which the Prophet was reciting Surah Al-Najm. Surah Al-Najm, وَالنَّجْمِ إِذَا هَوَىٰ مَا ضَلَّ صَاحِبُكُمْ وَمَا غَوَىٰ He was reciting Surah Al-Najm, and when he came to the end, Surah Al-Najm, there's a sajda ayah at the end of Surah Al-Najm. The Prophet ﷺ, at the end of Surah Al-Najm, he was reciting it, and as he was reciting it, the Muslims were listening, and the mushrikeen were also listening, and the Prophet ﷺ prostrated, the Muslims in the gathering prostrated, and the mushrikeen prostrated as well. Like everybody was listening to the recitation of the Prophet So this news of the mushrikeen prostrating at the Kaaba, listening to the Quran prostrating, to them that's like they're Muslim. And so news went to the people of Abyssinia that all of Ahl Mecca is prostrated and they're worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now. Which wasn't the case, they were just overcome with the beauty of the recitation that they heard. And so once those Muslims came back, they realized the situation still was difficult on the Muslims. The Quraysh started increasing their torture of the Muslims and that's about when the sanctions are kicking off. And then the Muslims then went again to Abyssinia. The second time that they traveled to Abyssinia, there was about 83 men, sorry, and 18 women went on that second trip. There was a woman later on amongst those who went to Abyssinia Later when they came to Medina, Umar radiallahu anhu was telling one of the women, basically like, 
oh, we got to do hijra with the Prophet ﷺ and you didn't. And she said, I'm going to tell the Prophet on you. <laughs> so she went and she said, I'm not going to add anything or not. She was very hurt by what Umar said. Because they went to Abyssinia and now he's saying like, oh, we did this, we did this, and you didn't get to do that. And the Prophet ﷺ said that you have the reward of two hijras. The hijra to Abyssinia and now that they came to Medina, the hijra of coming to Medina. And so this woman actually, everybody who would narrate the hadith, they'd go, anybody who went to Abyssinia, they went and said, what did the Prophet ﷺ say? They said they have the rewards of two hijras. So once they went there, on the second trip, and there's like about a hundred men and women that had gone from Mecca to Abyssinia. This is a big thing, as you can see, in the actual hijra to Medina, the mushrikeen were very much against it, right? So now this hijra to Abyssinia, they sent a delegation from Mecca to bring them back, to extradite them back to Mecca so they could be tortured and killed. So there's two people that went, Abdullah ibn Abi Rabi'ah was one of them from the Mushrikeen, and the second was Amr ibn al-As. These, these two were sent by the Mushrikeen in, in Mecca to go to Abyssinia to speak to al-Najashi and convince him to hand over the Muslims so they can bring them back. So this is what they did, right? First, there's Abyssinia was Christian. Abyssinia was Christian. And, you know, there's these priests and head priests and so on and so forth. So Amr ibn al-As and Abdullah ibn Abi Rabi'ah, they went and they took gifts. And they went to the head priests and they gave them all gifts. And they knew exactly what Najash, you know, what type of food from Mecca he loved, you know, from the Arabian Peninsula. They brought that with them. They brought all these gifts. And they first um, sat with the priests and gave them all these gifts. And they said, listen, tomorrow we're going to be talking to Najashi and we're going to ask for, you know, these hoodlums and these terrorists that are living amongst you. We're going to ask for them to be extradited. So we need your support. <laughs> so what we would like is that if Najashi asks to speak to them, like just say there's no need for that. Like just give them to us and you know basically let's not have a court case. Let's not have any court, let's just take it. Because if you go to account, you know they're gonna have difficulty because that they don't have the truth with them. So they said have them give them to us and we'll take them. We'll, we know them better than you do and we'll take care of them. So the next day, you know, all the priests got their gifts and then Amr ibn al-As, Abdullah ibn Abi Rabi'ah, they come to Najashi, they give Najashi the gifts, Najashi welcomes them and so on. And they start saying basically that there's these hoodlums, these terrorists, they've come from Mecca and they divide between our families and, and they curse our, you know, the religion of our fathers and so on. And, you know, we know them better than you do and we would like, we don't want them to cause any mischief in your land. We don't want them to cause any trouble for you like they've caused trouble for us. And we know how to take care of them. So just give them to us and everything will be good. Najashi refused. And then the priests started coming in and they were like, no, no, just they know them better. Just give them the back. And Najashi refused. Najashi was known for his justice. So he's not going to bypass listening to someone and just take someone's word for it. Which is a critical point of, I would say, this is Justice 101. You must listen to both sides before you come to a conclusion. That, that's critical. I would say that's like fundamental justice is you do not come to a conclusion until you've heard the other side. This is, and I'll give you an example of that. A woman comes in to the imam and says, my husband did such and such, and she's crying, boo-hoo, wah-wah. 
And then the imam does what? He's like, I know I have to listen to the other side, but if it is what you say, then man, you have a really bad husband. Oh, if I could only see him, I'd give him a black eye and stuff. All right? So this is, what this person just did was injustice. He came to a conclusion without hearing the other side. Correct? Now, it's human, usually what we do is, oh, we don't have access to the other side or so on. Even in a court of law, what happens when you don't have access to the other side? You give them time to come and state their case. You know, you, you've got like this many months, they have to come before you come to, you just can't do that, otherwise injustice is going to happen. Right? So keep that in mind. Even in the subhanAllah, I do this in, in, um, when teaching little children. One child will come, teacher, teacher, you know, Abdullah stole my pen or stole my crayons. Normally a teacher is like, Abdullah, give him the crayon back, right? That's injustice. You haven't heard the other side of the story. So every time a, t a student would say that to me, his Abdullah and you know, the other child, I'm, I'm like, okay, just hold on here. Let's find out. Other child comes. Come up here, you might be a little bit scared and so on and so forth. You bring them, you place them both in the same position. It's not you're holding one of them and the other guy's like over there. <laughs> They're both in front of you. And you let both of them state their case. So one of them speaks for like a few minutes saying what happened. And he said, well, I asked him for a crayon and, you know, and then he took something else of mine. Oh, so there's more to the story than this. What did you actually do? And then this other guy starts scared. And in the end, they usually resolve it themselves. They give themselves a hug and then they just go back. But if you listen to both sides, justice happens. And this is what an Najashi did. So they brought the Muslims the next day. Basically, this is the court case. Amr ibn al-As is there. Ibn Abi Rabi'ah is there. And on the other side, you had a group of the Muslims. They decided amongst themselves that only one person would speak. So it's not this person speaking, that person speaking, this person speaking, someone saying one thing, the other saying that thing. They chose we have one spokesperson. One person unified that speaks, about, speaks on behalf of Islam. That person was... That was the cousin of the Prophet Jafar ibn Abi Talib he was the spokesperson. So now he's a spokesperson. The second question is, should we butter them up? Do you guys say butter them up? Okay. What that means is like, basically like an interfaith dialogue. <laughs> you got like all these different religions, everybody saying nice things about the other person. You know, the universal brotherhood. And everybody's like, you know, you know everybody's just happy. Whatever those things mean. And... So you could take that approach and try to like not mention this, not mention that. And they decided in the end that they were not going to do that. They're not going to butter anything up. They're just going to tell them the truth straight out. It has been my experience that doing that, just saying the truth straight out gives you the most power. In any interfaith or whatever someone asks you, I, I, was, I remember I was talking about uh, speaking to world religions class at university. And someone says, what do the Muslims think about the Christians? I'm like, that's great. I would say, well, if you're worshipping more than one God, you're like, that's shirk. <laughs> that's associating partners with God. What happens to someone who associates partners with God? Right? And then you go through it. You can explain to the people, and they're like, oh. So you got to give your da'wah. They asked you, and you told them. You don't have to butter anything up. This is your opportunity to tell them. And they asked you even. Right? And in fact, the teacher after that, they enjoyed listening to that angle so much, they said, we'd like to hear Muslims' perspectives on Christians and Jews. 
right? It's like, we don't want, I'm like, I can't speak about on behalf of Christians and Jews because I'm not a Christian or a Jew. And they're like, no, we want to know their religious beliefs, what, how does it stand in Islam? So even they appreciate someone telling them the truth rather than someone trying to butter it up and go left and right. So, Ja'far is speaking to a Najashi. Najashi is listening to him. And Ja'far is telling him the situation. Th- these are the components of Ja'far speech. Number one, he spoke about the types of things that they did in Jahiliyyah. Right? Such as worshipping the idols, burying their daughters, the intoxicants, the cutting off of relations, the revenge killings, and, and so on. Battles that raged for like hundreds of years. So the bad stuff of the Jahiliyyah. Then he spoke about the character of the Prophet And so a messenger was sent amongst us that these were his qualities. And then he spoke about the upright character that Islam encourages. Islam encourages truthfulness, Islam encourages, you know, and through the list, taking care of your uh, fulfilling ties of kinship, taking care of your guests, all of those things, uh, taking care of the orphans, the needy. And then he spoke about the injustice that Quraysh did to them. That because they believed in Allah alone, then Quraysh went and started torturing them and killing them and so on. So the injustices that Quraysh did to them. And then Ja'far anhu said, our Prophet told us to come here because there was a king that no one is treated unjustly under his rule. And he said, our Prophet was talking about you, about Najashi. And so he complimented Najashi for his justice. And he said that Habasha, that you know, we were just reading earlier about Surah Al-Kahf, about the cave, and how you know, the seven sleepers, how they went to the cave when they weren't able to worship Allah. And he said that this is the cave for the believers. Because we're not able to worship Allah in our land, that we came here. And so at the end of this, Najashi, he loved what he heard. And he knew that this was the justice, and he said, go and you know, live in my land as much as you want. I will never trade you back to the people of Mecca. And so this was you know, their day in court, day one. Abd al-As, Ibn Abi Rabi'ah, they had lost. They wanted an appeal. So the next day, so they're not just going to leave it at that. They want an appeal. They, they said amongst themselves, that you know, we can't lose this, we can't go to, back to Mecca without these people being handed over to us. Amr ibn al-As and Ibn Abi Rabi'ah, they said to themselves, let's tell Najashi what they think about Isa Now what does Amr ibn al-As think about Isa In fact, they're mushrikeen, they don't believe in Jesus. But it suits them now to just bring up this issue. So the next day, they went to Najashi and they said, bring them back and ask them about how they spread blasphemy against Isa, against Jesus. And then Najashi is like going to get angry that he brought them back. So this they, they said amongst themselves, well, what should we say to Najashi about Isa? And the Christians took Jesus as the Son of God. And the Muslims say that he's not the Son of God. This is blasphemy to the Christians. And so amongst themselves they debated, what should we say? And so Ja'far who decided that he's not going to say anything more than what the Qur'an says about Isa salam. And so Najashi said, what do you say about Jesus? And Ja'far who recited to him Surah Maryam. وَذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ مَرْيَمْ إِذِنْ تَبَذَتْ مِنْ أَهْلِهَا مَكَانًا شَرْقِيًّا The verses, it's about on the second page of Surah Maryam, that explain the whole story of Isa 
and he recited the whole thing. Actually, I have a lecture called uh, Lessons from the Life of Isa, alayhi salam, and I, and I went through like the whole story. Jafar is explaining to him the story of Isa, alayhi salam. At the end of the story, obviously the verses are speaking about when Maryam, when the angel came to Maryam, uh, alayhi salam, and you know, gave her the glad tidings of a child. She said, you know, I, no, no man has, has touched me. And he said, this is the, the will of Allah. Then she became pregnant, even though no man had touched her. And then she separated from her people in, in her labor pains. She said, I wish I had never been born before this. And then Isa salam was born. And then he said to his mother, don't fear. And, you know, shake the palm tree and these, uh, these dates will come down and you eat from it. And when the people come, just say that you've fasted to Allah and you're not going to speak to anyone today. So when the people came, they saw Maryam bringing a child and they said, you know, what is this, O Maryam? Your father wasn't such and such, your mother wasn't such and such. And they wanted her to speak and so she pointed at the child and they said, how can we speak to like a baby? In... And then Isa responded, qala inni Abdullah that I am the slave of Allah. He gave me the book and made me as a prophet. And then the verses at the end, it says, This is Isa, the, uh, the son of Mary. That the statement of truth of which the people are confused in. And so Jafar recited these verses to an Najashi, and an Najashi was crying. His beard was um, drenched in tears from, from what he was hearing and his love for Isa salam. And then he said that there's no difference between, you know, Isa salam, there's no difference between, you know, the truth and what you have recited. That this is the truth of Isa salam. Now the verses that Jafar anhu was saying concludes that Isa salam is not the son of God. That he was the son of Maryam. And so, and Najashi, you know, they started getting angry at Najashi. They're like, how can you say that? What are you saying? That, you know, that these verses are correct and this and that. And so this is the statement of a Najashi, that you can fret and fume as much as you like, but Isa, Jesus, is nothing more than what Jafar has said about him. And so you'll see a Najashi, that not only was he just, but he stood up for the truth and he stood up for his principles. Later on in Medina, the Prophet وسلم, there, the day that An Najashi died, the day that An Najashi died, Jibreel السلام, brought the news of the death of An Najashi to the Prophet. And so the Prophet وسلم, that day he said, He said, Today a righteous man has died. And so the, the companions in Medina they stood up. And they prayed Salat al-Ghaib, which is like a janazah prayer for a corpse that is not there. Right? It's called Salat al-Ghaib. Ghaib means like a person who's not there. What's the Ghaib? Absent, yeah. Salat al-Ghaib is like the absent. It's a, it's a funeral prayer for a body that's absent from there. The Muslims stood up and they got in their lines and they prayed their Salat al-Ghaib for a Najashi, which tells us clearly that Najashi died as a Muslim.